Hello, and welcome to JK It's Magic, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because critique is our fangirl love language, and because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And today, in episode 28, we're going to talk about Labyrinth Lost by Zoraida Cordova. We meet Alex, a bruja who is hiding her powers and attempts to rid herself of them um, on her death day. Things go terribly wrong. Alex's family is taken and she has to travel to Los Lagos and with bad boy Nova to try and rescue them. But before we dive in, we want to tell you about our shiny new Patreon. We have different tiers, membership levels with nerdy names for $5 a month. Um, you can join the Court of Shadows and get access to our reader and listener community on Discord, which is like Slack, but for fun and not work. We also shout out your name in the episode credits, and we're going to have mini-sodes in which we talk about, we nerd out about everything from Marvel movies to Great British Bake Off. For $10 a month, you can join the Dregs, and we... At that level, you can get exclusive full-length bonus episodes, which are going to include deep dives into theoretical texts, interviews with readers, academics, writers, podcasters, and other rad people. And also you get all the rewards from the previous tiers. We also have $20 a month and $50 a month options. So please check out our Patreon. And the first 10 people to become patrons are going to get a book from our personal bookshelves. So checkity check it out. initial reactions so this was a reread for me and i've only read the first book in this series um the series is called brooklyn brujas um but i did really enjoy the book the world building is fantastic the book starts out really exciting and with the magic starts right away i love alex nova rishi and i really want to know what happens next this is a first time for me reading Zoraida Cordova, any of her work. I think it's also the first time reading any Latinx-inspired YA, if I'm... I don't think I've read any else, anything else like this. And I'm in love. I study Spanish literature, Iberian and Latin American literature, and speak Spanish and teach Spanish, so this is my shit. I am so excited to be talking about this book today. Time to talk about world building in Through the Wardrobe. So there's lots of Spanish used throughout this book, both in the naming of the Dios, but also characters using small amounts of Spanish in their everyday language, which um, I, I think in this, in our podcast, at least, we haven't read a lot of books from authors who have um, a second no language that they speak. Uh, so I thought this was really cool to have like little bits of it and not all of it was explained. Like you kind of maybe need to look things up or have a basis of knowledge in Spanish, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like how we talked about some of the books by black authors not being written necessarily for white people and not explaining different or, you know, the poppy war where they're not describing the kinds of clothes or cultural artifacts or whatever. It assumes it's written for people who have that knowledge um, mm -hmm. or who pertain to those sorts of communities. And if you don't, that means you have some work to do, which I don't think is a bad thing. Agreed, agreed. And even in the book even includes 
like phonetic pronunciations in Ally's exposition, which I really liked because clearly it shows that the author knows her audience and that a lot of them likely will not speak Spanish, Mm -hmm. which I think speaks to the demographics of YA readership more broadly and how that is changing. Yeah. But it's also a good way to bring in people um, from maybe demographics we don't see as often reading YA fiction. So people who speak Spanish or are interested in Spanish culture or um, Latinx culture might be interested in reading something like this where maybe their stories don't get told all the time. So, you know, representation matters. Absolutely. Magic has never been just for white people. Mostly has not been for white people. Mostly not, no. <laughs> Labyrinth Lost, um, the world building kind of hinges upon taking you from the more or less contemporary Brooklyn space with brujos and magic and other kinds of beings and then getting transported to Los Lagos, which is uh, the fantastical part of the world. It's like a purgatory or in-between space. And it's almost exclusively inhabited by magical beings, hadas, which is in the book spelling, it's A-D-A-S, but in in Spanish, H-A-D-A-S is fairies. Avianas, which are like harpy type um beings maloscuros which were basically cursed brujos or whatever emptied of their self and filled with bad magic or whatever blind giants fairies imps duendes which is spanish for troll and in los lagos time doesn't correspond to the quote human fabrication that it is in the empirical world um so i really like that and it's this whole thing reminded me it's like a very tried and true world building technique, especially in fantasy and sci-fi speculative fiction generally to set something in a different world because the rules quote unquote of where we live don't apply. And so you can do things a lot differently and defamiliarize things for readers and Los Lagos and its inhabitants, for example, are described as fluid on page 165. So it kind of is fucking with your, um, how you think that the world works and then means that like a lot of cool stuff can is then justified right under the magical system and in the world building. Shout out to the awesome map that this book included. The place names are awesome. The descriptions are cool. The drawings are awesome. We'll make sure to post this to our Instagram when it comes when the episode comes out. And all of the Spanglish um, place names like Mar del Fin, Bone Valle, Laguna Roja, Wastelands del Este, River Luxaria. It's so good. Selva of Ashes. Ugh, just love it. Love it. <laughs> okay, so I did nerd out a little bit in the research rabbit hole arena. On, such a Ravenclaw. <laughs> such a Ravenclaw. On a f- two different tropes that we see in Labyrinth Lost. And the first is the Tree of Souls which is reminiscent of, we find that in the middle of Los Lagos at the center of the labyrinth, right? Yes. And it's, to me, reminiscent of the world tree, which is a very common element in mythology, folklore, and religious traditions the world over. Um, World trees show up in, let's see, I have notes. All over pre-Columbian cultures, which I would say is the most important for this specific novel, for Zoraida Cordova. So all over um, Mesoamerica, from Maya, Aztec, Itzapan, Mixtec, Olmec, and all, which are all indigenous um, civilizations and traditions from Mesoamerica. 
what we would now call Central and Central America and Mexico. But world trees also show up in Baltic mythology, Persian mythology, Judeo-Christian mythology. Um, there's a tree of immortality, which is basically a tree of life in the Quran. In Norse mythology, Yggdrasil is the world tree that um, there shows up in Greek mythology, Roman mythology, all Hinduism, South Asian religions. There's it's, it's just everywhere. This trope is everywhere. And I think it's uh, I like the culture jamming that happens in the mm -hmm. book. I think it's really effective and makes it accessible. This figure in particular, this image is accessible to people basically from any culture. The world tree in these various traditions is often what um, we call an axis mundi, which is a Latin term for like a world axis or whatever. And it's a mm -hmm. point that connects earthly and divine spaces. And that's kind of what we see with Los Lagos, right? Which is, it's this kind of in-between area. And then the world tree is a connection between the divine and the ancestors. And then also it's a portal that gets used in the novel to go back to the quote unquote real world. Um, we see these sorts of important trees all over literature. Tolkien, Game of Thrones, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And kind of, it was funny because I just thought of it, how like Alex's family is there. So it's kind of like her family tree. It is like a family tree. <laughs> yeah, because like they all, all get, the ancestors are there. And they all get trapped there. So yeah, definitely. So the labyrinth is the second of these figures that I kind of went down a rabbit hole with. And it's an incredibly important symbol in, we see it in Greek mythology, for example, with the Minotaur, right? And Theseus, who I think, right? It's Theseus, yes, who I has to go and follow the rope to go to the center of the labyrinth and kill the Minotaur and that stuff. But the labyrinth is also incredibly important um, as a symbol in Latin American literature, especially in the work of Jorge Luis Borges, who's an iconic Argentine writer. Um, I don't think this particular novel expands the symbolism of the labyrinth in like very much but it's just it's everywhere all over latin american literature and i think that that's an this the author is clearly making attempts in various parts of the novel the writing the world building characterization etc to um explicitly connect to the latin american tradition history and mm -hmm. culture um so i think that's important to point out yeah, that's super cool. I had no idea. I've never read that author before. Maybe maybe time to check him out. Wands out. Let's discuss all things magic. Um, again, like some of the previous books we've read, we have a polytheistic magical system. And in this world, it's made up of the dios. So those are um, the gods. So we have La Mama and El Papa and El Fuego and like lots of different mm -hmm. gods named after elements mm -hmm. or different things yeah. in the world you have el cielo which means sky and heaven you have um la ola which means wave in spanish and that's at the water element you have la estrella just star and they all kind of correspond to like something has to do with them like based on their name so um la estrella estrella mm -hmm. <laughs> um like helps Alex when she needs more light because she's the god of the stars, which was really cool to me. I thought that like bringing in those those words to correspond with what they can do. Mm -hmm. And the the deos, this like 
system is also integrated in the backstories of the different magical creatures that we encounter in Los Lagos, like the Avianas are called Hijas del Cielo and Daughters of the Sky or Daughters of the Heavens, right? And so, and they're the ones with wings who can fly. Um, so it just like, it's very well explained, I think, and very well drawn out, but in not in a way that made me feel like, oh, I'm waiting for the plot to start after all this right. world building is done which I think is pretty um, remarkable. Well, I think some of it hinges on like the names that are given to them. And I think for anyone who doesn't have like any knowledge of Spanish, that might be more difficult because you wouldn't understand like the name, like El Fuego um, corresponds to fire. So like that wouldn't make sense to you. But if you know what those words mean, or if you take the you know, time to look it up, then it is helpful because it gives you a background knowledge of them without actually having to add more like exposition to the story Mm -hmm. in labyrinth loss we see kind of like how you mentioned that we have a polytheistic magical system we've seen this before in other books we've read for the podcast in particular um, we see humans as essentially vessels for powers that are connected so the magic is connected to the deos but it manifests through the brujos and brujas and brujices Mm -hmm trying to use the it's hard to do this gender not the like gender neutral version and pronounce yeah. it but we're gonna try um one thing that nova talks in when he's explaining to rishi alex and alex and nova are explaining how the magical system works to rishi after she's been like around she's been sticking it out on this underworld journey for a long time and then they're like yeah. oh maybe we can tell you what's going on now <laughs> um so nova says this on page I did not write the page down. Fail. Um, But Nova talks about the importance of belief and how he doesn't, he just knows that his powers come from somewhere and for him that's the Deus and he knows that it's like this embodied knowledge of the like embodied aspect of belief and why that's important for the magical system but also the um, like divine or non-worldly element I guess. But then again, magic is also intimately connected to the material world. We see the importance of the eclipse, for example, in the devourers wanting to get all the energy from the Tree of Souls. And also we see the the land of Los Lagos, which is basically kind of, which is like decimated because of the mm-hmm. devourers shenanigans. We see it responding to Ale's magic and getting regenerated. So that I thought that that was a really um, cool part of the magical system is that it's divine material and all of things in between right which i think makes the most sense in a world with magic because as much as nova talks about like having a belief it's a lot easier to believe in something when you have proof that that thing exists like it's less faith and more like i can see that this thing is real so for like rishi who is i think we're supposed to assume that she is of indian descent um she comes from a different religious religion religious background but we still see that obviously she believes and sees that this magic is happening which Mm -hmm. is a lot easier to do when you can see it happening yeah the empirical evidence helps significantly yeah just a little (laughs) another part of the magical system that's really important is this um idea of communal knowledge that is like co-collaboratively produced throughout time and space. And this manifests in the form of the Book of Cantos, which has 
it's essentially a it's a spell book right mm-hmm. that but that each family has and every there's this like tradition of documenting all of the different spells um and prayers and i don't like potions remedies all all these sorts of elements traditions and also there's like diary entries reflections mm-hmm. just like regular writing so that was kind of an, a cool palimpsest and then also um emphasizes how this magic is actually is quite literally a magical tradition that comes from the family and then it's like built over time right what the, what does cantos mean a canto is it's kind of from the verb cantar which is to sing okay that's what i thought um but i think it's like a it's essentially like an incantation okay because i thought it was like book of songs and i was like i guess spells can be like songs that's kind of cool um but obviously my spanish is much more limited than yours (laughs) (laughs) that's okay i mean it's it is related to that i would say i think it's more related to like incantation than it is to song Mm -hmm. because it's like the actual magic slash spell implication that makes sense Mm -hmm. speaking of cantos i um the difference I, i think it's it was cool how um in the book itself magic is culture and language specific so mm-hmm. lula on page 11 says that spells are for witches brujas du cantos mm-hmm. and um how there's a there's a distinguish among like essentially ethnic and cultural lines right. of what kind of magic is what yeah which is um really cool because i know i know that um Zoraida talked about it like at the end of the book and the, her like notes kind of but talking and I've I, I feel like I've seen it as well on Instagram and stuff with a lot more people talking about being brujas or brujos and brujeria and I thought that was really interesting to see like how um like the notion of witchcraft culturally has changed over time mm-hmm. absolutely ritual is also really important in this magical system we have all the different cantos, which have different ingredients and words that you have to say and movements, etc. Um, also, the death day ritual, which is like a brujo quinceañera, like a brujeria mm-hmm. quinceañera, except it happens when you're 16. And how would you explain it? It's essentially like a, a blessing or you accept yeah. your gift or something. Well, I guess it. Yeah, and I guess it doesn't necessarily happen when you're 16, but when like your power, like you come into your powers, because mm-hmm. I assume that Lula had already had hers, even though she's younger, or sorry, not Lula, Rose had already had hers, mm-hmm. even though she's younger than Alex. Mm-hmm. But I do think, I mean, the notes section at the end did make it seem like they tried to like sync up the death day party with, um, with a birthday to like make it more festive right but yeah it's like when you get your blessing from your ancestors that allows you to keep doing magic without like the repercussions we see happening in nova where he's basically like his magic is basically like eating him alive kind of like i don't know what happened what mm-hmm. would happen to him if he kept going the implication is die. yeah that's the implication as yeah. far as i understood it anyway yeah so you can't do magic without the blessing of your ancestors Hmm. Kind of like uh, in like kind of like in Coco, where like if Miguel doesn't help his what's the guy's name? I don't know his grandfather. Uh, spoilers for Coco, I guess. Then he'll <laughs> great be grandfather. Forgotten. Oh yeah, great grandfather. Like he'll be forgotten, and then he just like disappears. He doesn't get to be in the afterlife anymore. So I guess it's kind of like that. Yeah, the similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, blood is also an important part. Like there is act. Um, 
and the author talks about it off in the paratextual materials at the end, but the relationship to like Santeria and Vudun, right? The mm-hmm. idea of um, sacrifice and blood sacrifice and is being important in ritual. And Nova on page 96 says blood is life and that it's necessary to go through the sacred tree to the portal to Los Lagos. It's necessary for when Ale wants to connect to her ancestors at the very end, she mm-hmm. puts her like her blood on the soul tree or the tree of souls. Um, but I don't think we've seen a lot of this type of ritual in the books that we've read. No. And probably cause some of it is, I think people think of things with doing with, with sacrificing animals or blood magic as like hedonistic. Mm. Um, and we also haven't seen many books with like a foundation in, um, I don't know anything about Santeria, but any foundations in like voodoo, which, you know, came from Africa. So I don't think we've read a book that has had that before. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing people just think it's gross. (laughs) Magic is also hereditary. But we find out that it's diminishing over time. But so it's like not really clear to me when this magic started showing up and like at what point in the decline we are at. But Encantrix is an exception. Mm -hmm. So Alex is the exception because she's trying to get rid of her powers because she thinks they're a bad thing. But she's also like the most powerful Bruja um, of her family. And I'm guessing in a long line of Brujas and Brujos. Mm so yeah, I also don't know like when this started. Like, is there a reason that there's a di- diminishment in their powers? Yeah, if there's some sort of curse or something, maybe we'll find mm-hmm. that out later. Yeah, mm. because I think there are two more books, and I think the series is finished. So I think the last book comes out in 2020. Oh, that's so far away. <laughs> okay, only a few months. Away. <laughs> I know. Oh, don't remind me. <laughs> um. Yeah, so maybe we'll figure out more about that as the series goes on. Because I'm interested to know, like, why some of them have very weak powers and why, like, Alex is so powerful. Mm -hmm. Alex experiences magic somatically, so physically and emotionally in her body, which I thought was similar to, for example, what Zaley does in Children of Blood and Bone, talking about Mm -hmm. calling up anger and love and those being necessary to, um, for like magical power to manifest in the protagonist. And as in most first person YA novels, we kind of, we take the journey with the protagonist as a reader and we see the like learning about magic and learning to accept magic, accepting yourself is like a main plot arc. Um, and so at the end on page 297, we, we have Ale summarizing for us how she now thinks of magic which is magic is a living thing. It's part of me. I summon it, call it like a snake charmer calls a snake out of its slumber. The magic answers back. Yeah. And I think this kind of speaks to, like you talked about how anger and love, like she uses those to call on her magical abilities, but also how like our emotions have power over us and can influence like how we move through our lives. So Mm -hmm. for Alex, like when she's angry, she like, hurts Nova on accident. She has the ability to hurt other people or beings. Um, But when she's like moving through the world with love, it's like a different experience for her magic. So Mm -hmm. kind of how like our feelings are really like how we move through the world is like kind of important and powerful. Right. I like that connection you drew also because love is the, 
healing power really relies on love. Lula explains that to Alex, right? That when you feel the warmth, right? When I'm healing you, like that's the love that we, that I feel for you. Right. Like an act, a physical manifestation of um, emotions, which I think is really um, compelling, especially with like, given that we're so used to separating our minds and our bodies and then not thinking about our emotions. But in reality, it's like a body mind, no space, everything's happening all at once. It's all co-constitutive, you know, of our experience. Right. So in the story, we see there are repercussions for using magic and not in an everything comes back to you times three sort of way that we see kind of in um, uh, like witchcraft today. Um, Like white witchcraft, I guess. (laughs) There's a lot of white ladies. (laughs) Lots of them. Um, yeah, but literally all the magic recoil happens whether you're doing something bad or good. Um, and I think I'm not really sure what to make of this other than like you have to be careful about what you're using your magic for, but I'm not 100% sure why. Maybe it's like a balancing mechanism or it, that's like how it was originally conceived. Obviously, it doesn't work for the devourer, right? But we do see this aspect of the magical system, the recoil playing out in a lot of ways it's a it's a different way of we saw this also in kingdom of souls you know magic has a price is a pretty common trope that i think we've been seeing a lot more lately than in previous novel than in like earlier novels we read Mm -hmm. for the podcast um so for example nova and the marks left by magic we have this recoil that's worse if you don't like have it sanctioned by accepting a a blessing from your ancestors if you don't have a death day also ale's beef with magic right is that it destroys brings her family pain loneliness death but her struggle is thinking about slash dealing with the consequences of her magic and the choices that she makes right i guess maybe part of it is like trying to show that like every choice you make has repercussions and sometimes even when you're doing good things the repercussions can be bad so like alex is like healing people and that hurts her maybe she's healing bad people i don't know um we see glamours again with like magic used to deceive and imprison it's like the whole idea that magic is isn't bad in and of itself it's how you use it same with like what mm-hmm. you see in technology and sci-fi stories right the technology itself isn't bad but are you using it for good or are you using it for evil and we see that a similar dynamic playing out in labyrinth lost we keep seeing these glamours with like agosto and the hadas you know the the like look mm-hmm. twice comes up over and over and over again which is very similar to like other stories we've seen where fairies are involved because they're like tricksters <laughs> exactly exactly and we have a muggle equivalent are the scene magas and the only substantive contact we have with a scene maga is rishi yeah i'm i'm guessing that mean like kind of translates to without magic it does that's okay. right it's working your <laughs> duolingo, duolingo is working, is working. <laughs> uh, yeah so uh, yeah rishi's the only one um yeah. Oh, I guess at the school, we have like at the very beginning, we have a scene where um, Alex is at school and she makes a snake come out of that guy's mouth because he's that's right. being a bully. That's um, right. But that's that's the only other one. And I also like the whole time we were reading it, though, I thought for some reason, like Rishi was also going to end up having magical powers because I don't know how she ended up like I know she got to Los Lagos, but I was just like something's going to happen with her. So I'm 
anxiously awaiting for the next book for her to have some kind of powers we don't know about maybe bring in another magical system i'm glad you brought that up because i think that the book is like actually does characterize rishi or position rishi as having powers like they're but they're like magical in a different sense like Mm -hmm. alex talks about her rishi's power to be herself at all times no matter what and how it's like its own kind of superpower um yeah i think we'll probably see that dynamic and like Ale maybe learn Alex learning a little bit from Rishi like how to do that I guess as they as the novels go on that'd be my guess yeah as I was rereading the book for some reason in my mind I kept thinking that Rishi was actually one of the Avianas and not just like bumped into them um so in my head before I even started reading I was remembering her as being a magical being but she's not she's just you know she's a she's a muggle but maybe not really. <laughs> Wands away. Now we're going to talk about conflict, villains, and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Ren. Side note, I watched The Last Jedi a few days ago. For the ago. first time? No, no, no. The second time, I think. Kylo Ren. Ugh. I know. Mm. I know. Yeah. I like him. Me what too. What can I say? He's exactly my type. <laughs> <laughs> Emo sociopath. I know. I know. I have a, I have a type. You heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> God, I'm editing this out. <laughs> Alejandra is bullied at school. That's kind of the first instance of villainy, quote unquote, that we see in the novel. Um, and she's trying to blend in, right? But uh, something always sticks out. She's the weird person and she definitely gets targeted for it. So the Devourer is the main villain we have in Labyrinth Lost. And I think we've come up with a pretty compelling read of the Devourer on a metaphorical level. Wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yes. Dangling the lead. Suspense. Suspense. I We posit that you can read the Devourer as a metaphor for colonial takeover and resource extraction, specifically white supremacist colonial takeover and resource uh, extraction. Do you want to talk about the race part? Yeah, so the Devourer is the only character in the book who is described as white. Uh, Maybe some of the kids at the school. I don't really remember those kids because they were, like, not instrumental to the story. So maybe, like, that kid that bullied her was also white, which would still make sense for all things considered. Um, Yeah, but um, as we move through Los Lagos and, like, we see Alex's family and even Rishi, like, we don't have any white people, but the Devourer is described as having, like, a white face. So... You know, white people are trash. <laughs> Why is that right? <laughs> Sorry, Kelly. <laughs> That's okay. Stating the obvious, the devourer. Mm-hmm. Let's start from step one. So just like taking all the energy, doing whatever she wants with it, like consumption for consumption's sake, basically. Power for power's sake is kind of the feeling I'm getting um, from mm-hmm. this character. Also, we get the sense that the devourer will simply move on to the next realm when she's exhausted all the resources from Los Lagos. And that's yep. particularly why it's threatening, right? It's just going to keep expanding this um, extraction. Hunger for power and domination is insatiable. And this also recalls the legacy of struggle of indigenous peoples fighting for the land. We see that various times throughout the novel with uh, first with the Adas and the, or first with the Avianas and then with the Adas. And then they are coming together and there's a, definitely a discourse of we need to fight it's when people stop fighting for the land that, you know, all is lost, basically. Right. 
which really like makes me wonder what's going to happen in the future books because I feel like the Devourer was a really good villain and defeated at the end of the story and I'm wondering if she's going to come back somehow because I don't know who the villain will be in the next book don't know I haven't even looked up what it's about so I mean it's the from dad comes Lula's point of view I think oh I was not expecting that mm-hmm. that's at least huh. what the excerpt in the back of the novel okay. I have okay. is it's from Lula's point of view so we'll see mine did not have an excerpt for the second book so it says Lula's story Bruja Born okay we'll All see right. well yeah I assume they're gonna have to deal with some of that dad stuff mm, definitely um, another aspect of this devourer metaphor uh, for colonialism and white supremacist colonialism is um, the fact that this trauma is inflicted over generations. And I think this was, what was the Aviana's name? The main one, Madra? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that she, so she's explaining the impact over generations. And she says, quote, there are entire generations who will never know what it's like to roam Los Lagos freely. They'll never know what it's like to sleep under the shade of the forest lights or run through the Valle Azul. Yes, Shara Speras, but our lives have been punishment ever since. And I think this is a, a pretty explicit way of addressing the legacy of like the loss that happens when this sort of, um, I don't know what you even call it when the land is exploited this way and the indigenous peoples are exploited in that way. And it's this um, like layering of the except like this multi-layered acceptance, maybe not, maybe that's not the right word, but the, like the loss of what could have been, but can't versus like the future of liberation as being still being possible and holding those things like together at the same Mm -hmm. time. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it would be a difficult position to be in. And we kind of see like the people obviously of Los Lagos have tried to raise up and take over and were unable to defeat Zara just because she has so much power. So like, you know, white power, whatever. Mm -hmm. Boo. (laughs) But I think it is important that it keeps coming back to like that legacy of struggle and how it Mm -hmm. talks over and over again about how they keep fighting. And then when Ale shows up and is finally like turning the tide of this conflict, then they show up again. Like it doesn't matter. You like, like they keep fighting. Well, she helps does, she does help like free some of them, like um, the, the Meadowkin who mm-hmm. uh, like the fairies, like they were literally in chains um, and trapped where they were. So she does help like free the people for the sake of it, even knowing that they, you know, were trying to keep her there. Like she does the right thing a lot. Mm hmm. But not in like a sappy, you know, kind of way. And not in like a white savior way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also because she's exactly. not white. Yeah, she cannot that be helps. a white savior. Nope. <laughs> we see a pretty classic um, conflict trope, villain trope um, in Nova, which is the deal with the devil, like this Faustian mm-hmm. bargain with the devil. Um, and I feel like I should have seen this coming. Did you feel like that? Did you see it coming with the first time you read it? No, but I'll tell you why after you say your thing. Okay, so I feel like I should have seen this coming because the Zoraida Cordova totally dropped breadcrumbs along the way. So when I was like re-skimming um, the book for writing the our notes for the episode for recording, um, I found this quote on page 176 and Nova says it. And he says, not all monsters look monstrous. Sometimes they're perfectly normal humans. Sometimes they're so beautiful you would never suspect. 
She's like, come on, Kelly. Are you losing your touch? Yeah, but I feel like this was a really difficult one. And I know we'll talk about this more later, but it's hard because Nova is covered in tattoos. Like he's a brown person and he's been incarcerated. Like all the things add up to make me think like he can't be the villain because like it's too many stereotypes for like what white people see as villainous that I was like, nah, he's not going to be the villain. Like that's just not going to happen. No. He's just like this real hot dude, you know? <laughs> We're totally going to see a redemption arc. It's already on its way with like the fact that Nova finds Ale's dad and brings him back. And that's like the final cliffhanger. Yeah. But like, where the fuck was her dad? Like, and how did Nova also... find him? I feel like that's a book two question. Yeah. I'm assuming he's like, didn't leave of his own free will. Cause he also seems confused that he's back. So whatever but um yeah also getting rid of nova's tattoos at the end i know they were like killing him or whatever but i'm like not as interesting now (laughs) (laughs) maybe he can get tattoos that aren't killing him now yeah that's a good point anyway so like while nova does look like a normal human with his tattoos and you know his backstory i thought there's no way he's going to be the villain because like too many bad things have already happened to him you're so right i'm so white yeah Sorry, not sorry. Womp womp. <laughs> I don't think I wanted him to be the villain. I really I like don't. Him. I definitely didn't. And I but I was like, oh, this betrayal I think makes sense. It's like desperation. Yeah. Desperate circumstances create like sow the seeds for people to take like desperate actions, right? Yeah, or make choices. Sure. Make specific choices that, you know, can be read as villainous depending on the context. But in reality, if it's like if it was the only chance Nova had not to die, I mean, I'd do it. I get it. Like his motivations are very clear to me and and, and like acceptable. Right. I know he betrayed Alex, but like I don't know. <laughs> no, motivations are totally it. acceptable, especially because it's described as like he's the product of all this systemic violent right. bullshit, exactly. which is the mm-hmm. actual villain. Yes. Not the yeah, not systems. the brown man or the brown boy, right, who is caught up in this system and spit back out. Yeah, exactly. So is he a villain? I'm going to say not really. No. <laughs> he's not a villain. That's a no. No he's from gonna us. He's going to be fine. Yeah. The last que- point I want to make about in the Get Me Kylo Ren section is actually a question. Okay. This might have been a misreading of mine, but we still don't know how or why uh, Tia Rosaria or Aunt Rosaria was murdered, correct? That's correct. It's really weird because when um, Alex is with her in Los Lagos, she says there are like welts on her neck. Um, and I don't know for sure like how that means she was killed or why but yeah it's it's kind of confusing and i'm assuming that will come up later i'm not making up the that she was murdered correct there is that that is implied in the novel right it is kind of implied and i think that's what we're supposed to understand with like the markings on her neck but it seemed like also maybe a spell was going on or a cantos was going on at the time so I'm not 100% sure because she said she mm. had to die for another purpose and now she's taking over Los Lagos. So I'm also assuming this isn't the last time we'll be in Los Lagos. Definitely not. Maybe with Lula, who was like not that interesting to me. So I'm in, like, if uh, like I'm going to read the next book, but I'm also like, huh, what is this going to be about? Maybe she'll seems- get more interesting. Yeah. I mean, I assume she has to, but right now she just seems like 
one of those girly girls, which is fine if people are that, but that's not interesting to me personally. Mm. <laughs> but like, be whoever you are. I also don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Onward, magical listeners, just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about representations of race, class, and gender, this is our segment about powers and bodies and how they relate. Let's start with race. Let's. So when we talked about this a little bit earlier, you mentioned that there are no white people in this book except for people who are bad, villains, which appropriate. And um, I just wanted to clarify that racialization is actually happens explicitly in the language of the novel and it's not just with like the names and the ethnic implication like the ethnic differences Mm -hmm. we have a lot of brown people in this book and i think cordova does um describe like rishi's skin color and what like other characters skin colors and like what their hair looks like Mm -hmm. um this was something I thought Cordova did really well. She describes every character in a way that tells us what color they are. And obviously the only white person is a villain or a bully, which is kind of like a villain anyways. Um, so I really appreciated this. And, you know, we get Rishi is not Latinx. So we get also like different cultures as well. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that Cordova emphasizes the afro part of like afro latinidad so afro latina mm-hmm. um mama juanita for example is described as quote dark as night when mm-hmm. she appears in the death day um in like in the circle and um ally gets into this later when she's actually in los lagos and describing like the legacy of her family and it like the how many different races and cultures and experiences are um like had to accumulate over time and are combined mm-hmm. over time and then like show up in Ale. So she says on page 187, my mother's family were run out of their lands in Spain and fled to me and fled to Mexico. My dad's ancestors were African slaves in Ecuador. They went to Panama and then Puerto Rico. Somehow my blood comes from all over the world and settled in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is my home. So this notion that like the, it's like not erasing the, um, like not engaging in colorism as far as like not erasing the black slash African part of Afro Latinidad or Latinidad in general, like Latin identity or Latinx identity. Um, because that is something that happens in cultural discourse quite often. Um, and just this, um, the legacy of slavery and, uh, colonialism, right? So there, if you're, enslaved in ecuador probably means you're working or you're like laboring for these um spaniard like white spaniards right right Mm -hmm. colonial white colonial powers and then like panama and puerto rico and so like the legacy of how all these different these it's like not a straightforward backstory or lineage story and i appreciated the nuance because i think it's actually very that's very emblematic of how it actually works yeah and um cordova does address that also in the author's note at the end talking Mm -hmm. about um how santeria and voodoo came to um uh latinx cultures and like how those like how africa things coming over from africa and like mixed with catholicism which is voodoo um came to be which i thought was really interesting yeah 
Let's talk about class. Let's. Nova, I would say, is our most, is the character who brings class into discussion more than any other. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, like, his backstory is just heartbreaking and is a reminder that when the system gets in the way, it sets people up to fail, um, to become the villain. There's an implication um, before we know more about Nova that because he spent time in jail, that makes him a bad person. And that's just terrible and wrong. And, you know, I don't know. That was like a hard part to read. And I think yeah. it was really well handled and really mm-hmm. well done. Because you see how this prejudice of incarceration stays with someone regardless of, I mean, white people would interpret it that way, but also how that can be present like that prejudice of someone who's been incarcerated can exist also in these communities of color right um and inform people's like the snap decisions or the snap impressions that they make out of of nova and i would say that like nova is the quintus he like is the a survivor of all of these violent and interrelated systems like the foster care system and the police and the police state and the carceral state. And I guess I wish we would have learned a little bit more about his backstory. We get a little bit of it and I'm assuming he'll, you know, show up in the other books too. Um, but as like a pretty, there's a pretty big juxtaposition there with what then happened to um, Ale and her family. Right. He talks about like, he he makes Ale confront her privilege, basically. Right, right. Which is interesting because I think um, by, you know, other people's standards, Alex would seem like, uh, like her, her mom's obviously struggling to, like, provide for her family. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do see how, like, even someone who's struggling with a parent is a lot different from, like, a child that's struggling on their own. Because, like, Nova's dealing with also homelessness Mm -hmm. at one point and talks about, like, catching animals in Central Park to eat. So there's still, like, a divide in what the classes look like, even if, yeah. Totally, like, food insecurity. Yeah, Yeah, it actually provides, like, a nuanced picture of people who are working class or, Mm -hmm. or, you know, living in poverty rather than Mm -hmm. just, like, I don't know. Especially, I think, in, like, the current political climate you hear about, you know people in poverty or working class people but you don't actually mm-hmm. have discussions about what that lived experience looks like and that's something right. that i think Zoraida cordova really exceeded in in this novel is showing like the um spectrum of experience mm-hmm. yeah because like it's not just like class isn't just like here's upper class middle class like poverty like it's not just three levels of things like it runs a, a spectrum mm-hmm. and how you deal with that or how you feel about that's going to be different based on your circumstances right and especially we see this with um with nova with like how he's racialized right he's mm-hmm. not i mean having being a latinx person in the justice system is very different than being a white person in the justice system or in the foster care system for example yeah so I know he's supposed to be a villain, but I feel too bad for him to call him one. I so. don't think he is supposed to be a villain. I'm, I think <laughs> you're right. I think you're totally right that he's not, but that he plays into all the like stereotypes. And so that um, like hegemonic culture would read him as a villain, but he's not yeah. that way. Well, and also he's like putting on a show in some ways, like trying to be perceived as tough. Um, the tattoos help with that. And some of that obviously is a survival mechanism. Um because he has been through some really tough things, but uh, 
I think some of it's obviously for show. And like Rishi calls him on that every once in a while, which is also funny. That's a good segue into talking about gender because he's really the only fleshed out example of masculinity that we have in the novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, for sure. And it's very like masculinity is seen or like all the male characters are either very briefly mentioned, like the ancestors or people in the circle, not as important as the women, which we'll talk about in a second. But then also um, like unknowable, mysterious, right? You get this like idea that the father figure is absent, right? So we don't know, we don't have like that example of masculinity there anymore. Or it's like mm-hmm. a void almost. And and Nova does give off this impression of like unknowable, mysterious. Right. Yeah. No dudes. What's no dudes? That's fine. <laughs> too. Just Nova. <laughs> almost all the characters are women, so that's the flip side. And they're strong badass women. Yeah, including the villain. <laughs> like literally everyone. Which was really cool. Yeah, I it was something that I don't really think I explicitly noticed while I was reading the book but then like going back and reflecting on it I was like oh no that's like really awesome and hardcore there are practically no dudes in the book at all and the another part that's emphasized of this like essentially hyper visibility of of women in the novel is the matrilineal passage of knowledge power and magic and not necessarily matrilineal but like through women regardless of which side of the like family tree they're from or whatever. So we have Mama Juanita, Aunt Rosaria, who is the godmother. Um, Mama Juanita was the other Encantrix, correct? I think so. And I think she's like, um, she is also Alex's grandmother or great grandmother. And then Rosaria is the godmother. And when Alex and her are reunited in Los Lagos, we, um, the story kind of develops why that relationship is so important and like the really the like mentorship part of the godmother relationship, um, which I thought was really cool. And we also have Lady, who is queer. After two failed marriages to men, she um, marries a woman and then is also the local expert in all things like brujería. She teaches the young, she teaches classes to the young brujexes, brujos, brujas. Mm-hmm. Um, so really it's this lineage is passed down or the knowledge is passed down through the book, but uh, it especially the novel emphasizes the importance of like women passing knowledge to other women. Right. Which I think is actually something we see in a lot of like, uh, for people of color, uh, a lot of stuff is matrilineal. So, you know, grandmothers are very important in black culture, um, Obviously, I can't speak to every person of color's like group, but what um, you don't speak for all groups? No, <laughs> we are not a monolith. We don't tokenize <laughs> on this podcast. <Yeah. laughs> but anyway, so it's interesting. Well, and it makes sense in this context also because we do see that there are like Afro Latinas, so we see mm-hmm. um, like some of their culture is also going to come from Black culture. So yeah, it's pretty cool. Definitely, I think. The novel's implying that there's only women are in cantrixes, correct? I think so. Um, It seems like a logical extension of like the magical system and the importance of like matrilineal power, etc. Yeah, I didn't know if incantrix had any roots in Spanish. Like, does that mean something? 
like un encanto is like an enchantment or it can also mm-hmm. or like encantar or una casa encantada would be like a haunted house so there definitely is like the implic like a magical slash beyond the veil mm-hmm. implication with the word i guess what i'm wondering if it's one of the like um in spanish a lot of the words are like gendered correct mm-hmm. so i didn't know if encantrix had like a gendered noun form well i think the encantar also means to love which is kind of interesting oh okay um i don't there's an encantrix in encantrix in world of warcraft the internet says yeah (laughs) yeah i saw that when i was trying to look it up but i was like i don't know anything about world of warcraft so can't speak to that Mm -hmm. i mean enchant the ix um suffix i think in like maybe it's not latin but i i think a lot of the time it like denotes femininity okay um the ix yeah so i assumed it was only women that were in cantrixes but i think um but i also didn't know if like in spanish it was like a feminine noun you know So on page 149, Madra says the Dios are more than male or female. They are both and neither at the same time. They are the creators and the destroyers of the world. So while there is a lot of emphasis put on women and females in this book, um, it was interesting to see that the Dios were kind of like more non-binary, which was like hard for me to wrap my head around because their their names were also like masculine or feminine. So I just Mm -hmm. like made them whatever that was um but i think that's more of like a language issue in my head than an actual issue so Mm -hmm. either way i thought that was kind of cool let's talk about ability body minds other things um so alex has panic attacks in the book we mostly see this at the beginning of the book there are a lot of things going on in this story that can be helped by therapy i think so true Alex probably should have gotten help after seeing her dead aunt Rosaria. Oh my God. Yes. Um, Or after accidentally killing her cat. That would be so tragic. Oh my God. You would need so much therapy after that. Yes. Where are the, where are the like brujo? Where's the like the brujeria therapeutica? Where's the like bruja therapy? Yeah, like the whole Martiz family should have talked to someone after the dad left because like, where was he? And like, why did he leave? No one seems to know. There are so many things going on that would take a real toll on anyone's mental health. So like, Mm -hmm. it's not surprising to me that Alex is like holding in her magic. She doesn't want to deal with it. Like they're not talking about things, which I know is kind of what pushes the story forward. Right. But also... Like y'all need some therapy. <laughs> and we do see how this isolation that Alex does and the um like the secrecy, the holding it herself back has physical manifestations, kind of like what we saw with Alina in the Shadow and Bone books, right? That we Rishi at the end of Labyrinth Lost talks about how after Alex Alex has accepted her magic and is like coming into her own about how she like glows or wears it on her skin or like looks so beautiful or just i don't know um so there is an implication that magic expresses physically and that it like changes her hair makes her hair curlier right too um is that why my hair is so curly i think it's super magical (laughs) you're a book witch 
book witch that's me that's (laughs) and i think that the reason why we don't see alex having as many panic attacks at the as the book is going on is because she's coming into her own with her magic and isn't trying to hide it anymore yeah which makes sense totally um, we also get some ableist language in this book, which was like a little disappointing. Um, Nova's eyes kept being described as bipolar because they were always changing color. Um, I think they kept like calling each other crazy. And I was just like, huh, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. So there's that. I just thought I should mention it. And aside. Another thing that I think we that I'd like to talk with you about because I'm not really sure how to like wrap my mind around it is the way addiction shows up in the novel. Mm-hmm. Um, power is addictive. It's like explicitly described that way. We see this in the devourer. And then Lula also makes this comment disparaging certain encantrixes for using the recoil of their magic as a drug. And she says on page 60, they conjure to get high or feel numb. Mm-hmm. So I guess it's maybe... Pr- perhaps not the most compassionate or nuanced discussion of addiction. Right. But I don't, I I mean, I think it still has, it's still interesting, right, to analyze. Well, and I think maybe kind of uh, with Lula, it's kind of a way of showing us that the recoil happens different for different people because for um, Alex, it's very painful. So it's not something she would want to keep happening, even though, you know, in the end of the book, she's willing to help people who need her help, even though the recoil is a um, symptom of that. But yeah, the, yeah, the power addiction and obviously Zara is like the main focus of that. And it like, literally she becomes the devourer, like being addicted to power is kind of what is her downfall. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And like her most salient characteristic. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it kind of takes over her entire identity. Right. Well, I guess we see it also with Nova a little bit in that he can't like control his need to use magic or whatever, but he's using it to keep himself safe. So maybe that's kind of a different kind. By any means necessary. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. As far as addiction goes. Yeah. It's not like yeah very compassionate or kind and reading of what that is and i wonder if we'll see um any of these other any of the other people especially alex struggling with this later on mm-hmm. when she starts using and now that she's started using her magic more yeah or we might see it also with lula because i feel like there's going to be a desire for lula to use her magic more because she is alex's older sister to kind of show her up mm. so we might see what what that looks like as she uses her magic more and more how she deals with that and the recoil and like the repercussions of that i feel like she's not going to be happy that her sister is more powerful than her (laughs) that that's probably going to cause some sisterly tension i think so i think so (laughs) finally it's time for shipwrecked a segment about asexuality sexuality sex romance and relationships and sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own Sister relationships, speaking of sisters, good segue. Good segue. Did you get a charmed vibe? Until you just said that, I did not. And maybe because I kind I never watched that show. I totally got a charmed vibe. Not from like the original necessarily, which is just like three white ladies, but the CW reboot is all they're Latinas. And one of the sisters is Afro Latina. Um, 
So I thought that was kind of like an interesting coincidence. I thought like the banter between the sisters was really cute and charming and the like bathroom scenes. Um, and which is funny because neither of us has sisters. I know. So, <laughs> so maybe it would be less like... charming if it is something either of us had experienced. Yeah. Cause I have never, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it just seemed like that was very good character building and world building. Even though we weren't like learning about magical creatures in Los Lagos, we were learning about how they relate, how the sisters relate to one another and the sort of intimacy that they experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because like for me, I was like, man, Lula is so annoying. Like taking her sister's clothes. Like she's very concerned with like what she looks like and making sure that Alex is like into boys or whatever. And I'm just like, calm down. Just let her live her life. (laughs) Definitely like an older sister vibe, which I mean, as an older sister, I respect. I get it. But I guess it's hard because my younger siblings are brothers. So I'm like, I was like, I don't care what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, like beyond sisterhood, the blood family is just incredibly important in the novel in general. And it's definitely not like a white version of blood family, which is like nuclear family, like you're two and like your 1.6 kids and your dog or whatever um it's definitely an extended family it's like we see this with the death day and the all of uh, and alex channeling all of her ancestors power like generations and generations of her ancestors um but one thing i thought like an unintended consequence maybe is that this excludes the most marginalized who don't have close kinship ties um like nova right so if you don't if you can't like if you have no one there to do a death day for you then what you're just like doomed to die because of the magic that you can use or something i don't it just seems well not only that like he mentions that his grandma tried to do the death day for him but his family was so fractured including his ancestors that it didn't work so it's tragic families are trash (laughs) so that's what i got from that like don't trust your family find a new family like don't even worry about them you know that's what i took from it (laughs) i'm not sure that's the message that the book is sending Hmm. i mean that's what i got but (laughs) (laughs) i i do think that we that there is like a chosen family or like the importance of kinship is then highlighted with through this um through like the circles which are the different um, covens, basically, of the different witches. I thought that was really cool about how you had a circle that you... her The mom has a circle, and then Lula has her own circle, and you kind of figure out how you fit in a larger community of like kinship ties, basically. Yeah. The only thing I wasn't sure of is if the people in your circle were also related to you necessarily, because I know in like Lula's circle two of her cousins are also in the circle i don't think so i don't i don't think especially with like the mom's circle i what i don't think that everyone was related because you do have like that um it was almost like a neighborhood feel Mm -hmm. or a friend like these are our you know family friends or whatever yeah i guess it's also hard too because i know like in black communities people are like your family but then you like learn when you get older like they're not related to you in any way shape or form they're just like your family you know like they've become Mm -hmm. part of your like quote-unquote family so i also wonder if like maybe some of those people aren't actually related to them at all (laughs) yeah that could that's very likely or that like the 
blood tie isn't necessarily the most important thing. It's like how, what have you shared? I have a prediction that Nova is going to become a part of a family or like a community or a kinship group. And then he'll get a death day and then he'll be okay. That's my hope, which segues into my hope for Alex and Rishi and Nova. So Alex is in love with Rishi. So we have queer characters and not just like side characters, um, but also with Nova. So I don't necessarily want them to be in a love triangle because I don't want to have to choose between Rishi and Nova. Well, you don't. I mean, in a like monogamous situation, you would have to. But they're like 16. So we're not going to get into polyamory. (laughs) Maybe. But maybe we will because I'm also like, can they just all be together? Like... Alex is at the top of the triangle and she's with Rishi and Nova who don't necessarily like each other that much, but I'm not sure if it's just like they're both vying for her. Attention. Or like Nova could be like a second. Yeah. Okay. That's all. That's all I say. <laughs> that's my hopes for them. <laughs> I loved how the novel didn't, again, it wasn't like Alex being like, Oh God, does this mean I'm queer or does this mean I'm a lesbian? No, you just like are feeling your feelings and they are what they are. And it's just like normalizing queer love, basically. Yeah. Well, it's funny because as I was reading it this time, I think I had forgotten a lot about the book because I read it kind of like a while ago, maybe when the book came out. And I was like, huh, does Rishi have feelings for Alex or does Alex have feelings for Rishi? And I just totally forgot all about it. Yes. And And yes. And and Nova, too. (laughs) Yes. And and. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciated that. I Mm -hmm. thought that was cool. Mm hmm. We should have that more often. Yeah. There were no sexy times. No, there was like a kiss between Rishi and Alex. And that was kind of it. But it was, it was so <laughs> tender and beautiful and uh, love. But there's also so much going on in the story that the the romance part of the story isn't really the big part at all. Which we appreciate. Yeah. Sometimes I'm... I want that and sometimes I'm like there's too much other stuff going on who would have time for romance and if I you know if you need to if you're gonna like you can also like channel that into reading romance or whatever yeah read romance if you want to it can be great it can also be trash so like Jesse is the one with the Rex I am not the expert I will get Kelly to read them eventually (laughs) bonus episode yeah Now we're going to talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever else comes to mind in a segment called Kill Your Darlings. I need to gush for a second about how absolutely glorious the Spanglish was. It's everywhere. The Spanish-English mixing. It's revindicated as a legitimate linguistic expression of Latinx and Latin America diaspora communities. And I think that's super rad and really important. Yeah, it was wonderful. Also, just look stuff up if you don't know it. It's not that hard. Come on. Yes. (laughs) Like some of the Dios, I didn't know what they were like representative of. So it's like, just look it up. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Also, it's Deos. Oh, Deos. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love how each chapter begins with a quote from the prayer ritual or writing, often from the Book of Cantos. I just thought this was a, a... very effective way like kind of a shorthand for putting more of the paratext like the world building stuff in there 
and making you feel more connected to the magical tradition. It makes it like fleshes it out more without necessarily having to spend a lot of time doing it. I don't know if you noticed, but when you started saying it, I was shaking my head. And rolling your eyes. Yeah. Kelly loves like additional little things mm. from other like not real books. I <laughs> like, love paratexts. Oh which my gosh. Can segue to my next comment. <laughs> um it is now canon on this podcast that I love paratextual materials. If you didn't already know. <laughs> so the um especially at the end of the novel, like in an author's note, which Cordova does in this in Labyrinth Lost, um, she discusses the social, cultural, and historical information that influenced her writing. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm just like into this because of the idea of giving credit where credit is due, citational justice, mm-hmm. but also it gives readers some agency and kind of makes it so the learning doesn't have to stop when the book is done. Like you can, like Cordova suggested further sources for learning about Santeria or something like that. So we can, like, I'm totally going to look up some of those things so I can learn more. I, I think it's a really great way to keep the learning happening after the book is done. Yeah, we talked about it in one of my children's lit classes about the importance of like citing your sources and like where um, it was mostly to do with like where stories come from as opposed to like saying like this is a story based on like a Korean folktale like but where did it come from like you can't just say those things. So it was really cool that she like was like here are the books I read about Santeria and voodoo and like here are where these stories come from or stories similar to them. Like I thought that was really good and it's very important for people to know like i'm i'm sure there are some readers who think like oh death day that's like a quinceanera and they're like the same thing <laughs> you know like now they're gonna conflate those two things if they don't read the end notes so putting those right. in there also lets the reader know what is fiction and what is mm-hmm. fact you know right Which exactly because I then you wouldn't helpful. yeah totally and then you wouldn't if you were operating under that assumption, then you wouldn't understand the like Dia de Muertos and why that's so important in the death day conception. Um, And then I also really like how it's not just historical information. It's also, um, so Ryder Cordova gives like contemporary information about Mm -hmm. like, what is the, what are connotations or typical everyday uses of the word bruja in contemporary Spanish? Um, and which is not something that I was really expecting to see contextualized, mm-hmm. which is but also r- the history rad. of that and like how yes. it was seen as something bad in the past and how people have like taken that back to make, you know, mm-hmm. as a powerful thing. Absolutely. So rad. Love paratextual materials. Jesse, that's another thing. I like that our, we're just going to know that we agree to disagree on this. I like it in the, like, as an end note, like, adding to the story, like, oh, here's what you need to know contextually for the story. But, like, within the story, I'm kind of, like, I don't, I don't feel it's necessary, Mm. but, like, other people do. So, like, I'm not the only reader. I love, like, a (laughs) random document or, like, an aside. Jesse does not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, This, the idea of rememory came up for me. So, this is, like, a... It's originally, I think, came out of Toni Morrison's Beloved, but it's like a recognized narrative technique now for narrative exposition. So when you're living someone else's memory mm-hmm. and it's experiencing it through your own, like through yourself and your own perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and this happens twice in the novel. In Labyrinth Lost, we see it with the two like non-100% good characters. We see it mm-hmm. with Saras 
backstory and then we also see nova's backstory from their original perspectives and we that's marked by italics in the text and it's like this little flashback essentially which we've seen in other stories before and i think that that's like a good use of that um literary technique because otherwise because so much is in first person otherwise we just have a bunch of like a shit ton of exposition of people telling us their stories which can get kind of boring yes and i have a question is there like a smells of ya (laughs) (laughs) hashtag or like reddit not that i'm aware of channel i have no idea because it's called a subreddit whatever you know i don't know how it works (laughs) i'm older than you i feel like you should know (laughs) yeah but i'm not on the reddit (laughs) no it's okay um there's well because like this is remind it I remember thinking about this when we did the Akamath episode with Reese smelling mm-hmm. like citrus and sea salt or something. I don't even know. But Nova apparently smells like, quote, the rain hugging the new green of spring from page 72. And I'm like, OK, smells of YA has to be like a new thing because there are a lot of. So this is like an evocative sensorially. Like I get why the authors do this. But at the same time, it's just like no one smells like this yeah like i don't understand i'm like where are the like and it's always dudes like what these yes. dudes smell like and i'm like because like when i want to know what rishi I, smells like well i just finished to all the boys i love before reread for class and they talk about like i think peter telling um larging that he likes the smell of her hair and she's like oh it's the shampoo i'm using but the dudes always smell like the most random things and i'm like what the fuck are they wearing that they smell like rain hugging the new green spring i'm like everyone is there just like (laughs) magical cologne or something in ya i don't understand i have to say i don't like that like it always like pulls me out a little bit it does what the fuck like it's just very like like this it's like very genre tropey i guess yeah well and for the most part i feel like most dudes smell kind of the same because they're all wearing like the same deodorant or whatever or like axe body spray (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but it wouldn't be like a very imagine trying to like write an axe body spray in the vein of like ya style yeah they should do those like those terry cruz commercials (laughs) they should do them but like with ya you're like broody dudes you know (laughs) it'd be so funny recommend if you like if you like chosen one stories, I I really like this take on a chosen one story because it didn't feel like one to me until I was like thinking back about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like it's a a covert chosen one story. Yeah, there wasn't like a big prophecy or things like that, which was no. I I I liked this spin on it. Yeah, yeah, like Alex has to be the one to save them, but kind of because of the situation she put them in. <laughs> so like, <laughs> clean up fix your, mess. your own bullshit stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fix your own bullshit. People dealing yeah. with consequences. That's another yeah. good one. Yeah, I couldn't think of like a a comp title exactly, um, because we get a lot of chosen one stories, but not in this this same vein. Mm-hmm. Before we end, it's time for real talk. Did reading this book make your perspective change in any way or did it make you interrogate a concept system or trend you hadn't before? For me, this kind of labyrinth lost, I think gave us the most mm, nuanced gray area e engagement with this, with the like chosen one that we just talked about in the previous section, but also this, um, 
how it how the free will and agency versus the like destiny or the magic that Alex is born with as an incantrix. I thought that the tension between that was actually was more interesting and less like uh neither can live while the other survives like Harry right. Potter prophecy style chosen one narrative. So I think that the free will ver- free will versus the, like the determinism or the destiny is I think that like tension is still there and I'm curious to see how it plays out in future novels. Yeah, I think they did a really good job because Alex isn't, she's a chosen one in a way, but of her own making. Mm-hmm. And so she wanted to get rid of her powers and her family left. She made and, that choice. Yeah. So if she didn't do that, she probably would have been fine. Someone else probably would have had to defeat the devourer. And she, like her family's gone. She probably could have just lived out her life and been fine. Well, it was all not really, because like, look what happens to Nova. If she didn't get her yeah. family back, she would probably end up where Nova was. That's true. Or she would have stopped using magic and she would have been fine. Maybe. Maybe. There's just a lot of choices at play here instead yes. of like, you have to do this or else. Which is why I thought fucked. this was way more interesting than other engagements yeah. with the free will versus destiny. No, I agree. Finally, as a new feature of season two, at the end of every episode, we are going to suggest an action item that listeners can take as an extension that connects to some of the core themes that we've been talking about in the episode about the particular novel. And we think of this as a way for readers slash listeners to learn more shit, do less harm and continue to fight for our collective liberation since that's what our project is about. So this week, this episode, we are suggesting... um, the read open veins of Latin America, five centuries of the pillage of a continent by Eduardo Galeano. So actually expanding this metaphor of the devourer and not leaving it in the realm of the metaphor and actually looking about how the uh, legacy of white supremacist colonialism, uh, settler colonialism and colonialism actually manifested materially on populations over half a millennium in all over what we now know as Latin America. So check it out at your library or on IndieBound, and we will link to it in the show notes. Thanks for listening to JK It's Magic. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Crooked Kingdom by Lee Bardugo. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you, magical listener. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at JKMagicPod. You can post your tweet about the show using the hashtag CriticallyReading, and you can contact us via email at JKMagicPod at gmail.com. You can subscribe to JK It's Magic on the podcast app of your choice, and we really appreciate it if you would rate and review the show and spread the word to other rad listeners and readers out there. If you're interested in supporting JK It's Magic, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee. You can also support us monthly on Patreon in exchange for free minisodes, bonus apps, swag, and much more. The podcast theme song is Under Mary Academy of Magics by Augustine C. from the album Fantasy Music, which you can download on freemusicarchive.com. JK It's Magic is recorded and produced on stolen indigenous land. Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute land for Kelly and Chickasaw, Kaskaskia, Kickapoo, Maskutin, Miami, Meskwaki, Odawa, Ojibwe, Payankasha, Peoria, Potawatomi, Sauk, and Wea land for Jesse. Until next time, stay magical. Stay magical.